listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Rabbi Paul Citron, who has served as a congregational rabbi, teacher and writer in Albuquerque at Congregation Albert and elsewhere around New Mexico for over 25 years. So Rabbi Paul, welcome to our show. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's wonderful having you here. You've written this really lovely, wonderful book called Isaac Unbound, A Life of Reconciliation. It's had very positive reviews I've seen online as well. So um, do you want to share from your own words a little about the book itself? Well, uh, you know, actually, I wrote the book in uh, 2022, but I began it, I would say, about... Uh, 2005. It's an idea that's been floating in my head. And the reason is that Isaac, of the three male patriarchs in Jewish tradition, has fascinated me. He's not the uh, iconoclast and creative uh, religious pioneer that his father Abraham was. And he's not the activist and the schemer his son Jacob was. Uh, He almost seems too passive. And the question is, What does he stand for? And I find in reading between the lines of uh, Genesis that uh, he was a very spiritual figure who uh, tried to uh, fix broken things in his life and the life of others. And so to use this, to create this narrative, where does it come from? Because we have the Genesis text. Why are we not content with the Genesis text? How do you go further? Well, I love the question. Actually, in a, uh, a note to the readers, at the beginning of the book, I say Torah, that is to say the five books of Moses, are terse. They don't give us more details than uh, what are ne- necessary to uh, carry a narrative forward. But um, for a couple of thousand years, probably far back as 200 before the Common Era, um, Jews recognized that um, there was much to say about Scripture that Scripture didn't say about itself. And so they interpreted it, they spun tales, and the genre, the type, the style of literature that they created as a result of such discussions we call in Hebrew Midrash. Midrash uh, means to study, to seek, to interpret. And what it does is it expands the biblical narrative and it answers unanswered questions, or it may give uh, new views on belief and theology, um, and certainly is there to teach values. So uh, there are many things in Isaac Unbound that come from Uh, point of view of Midrash. May I give you an example? Uh, We're told in uh, a section of the Midrash that Isaac 
was born on the 15th of the Hebrew month of Aviv, the month of spring, Mm -hmm. or in later years called the month of Nisan. And the reason that's interesting is because that is when we celebrate liberation from Egyptian slavery, and uh, we celebrate uh, freedom. And it suggests, by talking of Isaac being born on that date, that he is a figure of redemption, a figure whose uh, life values and actions help redeem other people and himself along the way. But the Midrash is what sparks it, and I could give you other examples in the book. But with Midrash, there's widely diverse readings. That's, the for me, the joy of Midrash, to say yeah. one person reads this text this way and another reads this text this way. What leads you or what, what led you to, to follow a particular line of Midrash or to say this one resonates with me? Is there a, a way of deciding it? Is there a, a, a sort of unspoken assumption that you want Isaac to be presented in this way? Or how, how do you weave your way through a lot of Midrash? And there is a lot. How do you weave your way through to find the Isaac that you experience? Well, you know, there's one point I neglected, neglected to make, Rabbi Neil, and that is, uh, although uh, Midrashic texts have been around for a couple of thousand years, and by the way, there's not a single book called The Midrash. Indeed. It's found in a number of collections. Uh, but beside what we inherit, we also create Midrash in our own right. So uh, what I did was a, a combination of two things. First, I went through uh, a lot of the uh, collection of Midrash uh, about Isaac, some of which uh, didn't uh, speak to me and some of which did. And secondly, there were still unanswered questions. And I guess I could say that Midrash begins from attempts to answer questions that uh, the biblical text uh, doesn't answer. Let me give you uh, a playful example. We're told in the traditional Midrash that when Isaac was weaned and had a great feast, Sarah, his mother, who was then 90 years old, uh, nursed uh, a thousand kids who were there with their parents at the weaning. And that is so uh, mind-boggling. I said, you know, I really can't accept that. So the Midrash I made was that Sarah created land of Canaan cakes. She took the seven species of the land of Canaan, wheat and barley and uh, grapes and figs and pomegranates, etc., and made breast-shaped cakes with little um, pomegranate seeds on the top. And she gave each child a breast-shaped land of Israel cake rather than nursing them uh, directly. So, uh, you know, well, on the one hand, uh, there's much in the book that's serious and I hope food for thought. Uh, There's also uh, some light stuff uh, based on my own uh, text on on how uh, we might read it. Um, I don't know if I've thoroughly answered your no, question. I, or no, no, you have. I, I mean, but I think you're bringing in that personal aspect when you say we we create midrash in our own right. I guess that leads to there are many people who for whom this concept of midrash is alien. Um, that the idea. Oh, I understand that. Yeah, and, and you know, Rabbi Neil, I guess uh, on this topic, one of the most important things I can say that goes back to the question of you know how did I come to this 
is we're told in Genesis, I think it's something like 2462, just one sentence that Isaac was coming from the way of Be'er Lachai Ro'i. Be'er Lachai Ro'i is a place name that refers to where Ishmael and his mother Hagar lived after they were exiled by Abraham Mm -hmm. uh, from the camp. And I remember saying to myself, what is Isaac doing down in Be'er Lachai Ro'i? He lived in Beersheba. And the answer that I came to was, he was seeking his long-lost brother, who was kicked out of the family when Isaac was perhaps uh, two or three years old. But Isaac always felt a, a vacuum in his life and went to seek him. And so a hunk of the book that I wrote has to do with his seeking Ishmael and arriving at uh, a reconciliation. Hence the title, Isaac Unbound, A Life of Reconciliation. And by the way, Isaac Unbound refers to um, what in Jewish tradition is called the Akedah, Genesis 22, the uh, story of the binding and near sacrifice of Isaac. Well, in the course of this novel, he struggles to uh, repair his relationship with Ishmael, and he did not destroy that relationship. That really goes back to uh, his father and mother's uh, responsibility. Then he has uh, some conflict with Avimelech, right. who's the king of the uh, Philistines, and that's a conflict in his own time, which he has to work out. And ultimately, he has the most difficult reconciliation challenge of all, one that we all have, which is to um, come to terms with uh, our values versus our deeds, and to really live a fulfilled life, we have to align them. We have to make sure that what we do reflects our values. And um, in the end, uh, although he has a very special loving feeling for his son Esau, he knows that Esau is not the one who's really competent to take over the role of tribal leader and covenant bearer. And so he uh, fixes the discrepancy mm. by giving the uh, the blessing to Jacob. Now, I have a midrash on how that came about, but I don't want to tell you or my listening audience. Right, right. You have to read the book. You have to read the book. And um, before we take a break, I mean, you mentioned the Akedah, and I think it's very moving. It's about page 42, 43, um, how, how your midrash is very different to the at least one traditional midrash the idea, if you don't mind me just sharing a little, just as Father had described to me how he heard El Shaddai, not through physical hearing, but as words in his heart, that was my experience with the shimmering, transparent presence. As though whispering to me, it spoke with urgency, boy, you are on a mountaintop, there are no lambs up here, the old man has a plan for you, and it is not holy, run, you can outrun him, save your life. Without speaking aloud, I answered, we are here at El Shaddai's bidding. No harm will come to me. That's a fascinating perspective um, from you as a a modern Midrash, because there's certainly one Midrash that says, yes, he gives himself up. He gives his life up. He understands, you know, he becomes in Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, um, partly that that role of self-sacrifice, that he understands that he's going to die and he does it for the faith, essentially. Your Midrash here is the opposite, which is, no, he has perfect faith that his father won't do these things. 
And this tension that I see certainly around here, I did have a choice. I could have run off the mountain, um, but doesn't. It really, for me, it's fascinating how you've presented Isaac. I guess before we take a break, how much of Isaac, how much of you is in your reading of Isaac? Oh, well, I, I've not thought about that exactly in terms of, of uh, percentages or space, but I appreciate what you uh, just brought up because there is a Midrash, a traditional one, that says Isaac wasn't a, a child or right. a preteen. He was a 37-year-old man. And the point of saying something like that is to bear out what you just said, namely that Isaac was a willing participant according to an ancient Midrash. And if he's going to carry on the covenant, uh, he needs to be a willing participant. But uh, I see it, uh, I've, I've never quite bought into that. I, I understand its purpose. But I always saw him as, uh, you know, someone between, let's say, 12 and 14. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in a sense, we are all victims in some measure, even of loving parents right. who have certain ideas uh, for us and about us. I also have to say, uh, in the uh, spirit of complete honesty, that the idea of um, a presence on the way up to Moriah, trying to talk Isaac out of going and Abraham out of following through, comes from the traditional Midrash, mm -hmm. where the figure that speaks to them is called in Hebrew, Satan, right, right. but I want to be very clear to members of the Christian audience that there is not a Satan who's a devil-like figure in Judaism. He's more the uh, prosecuting angel. Right, the opposing angel. Yeah, right. And so I, I just think it's it's fascinating because every Midrash speaks of the reader, as uh, speaks of the author as much as it does of the reader. So we need to take a break. Um, after we come back from the break, because um, the concept of Midrash may be alien to some people who are listening, I want to just explore the question, who are you to write Midrash, essentially? Who is any of us to write Midrash? Well, that's a great question. I look so, forward to it. So we'll just take a pause. Uh, you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Rabbi Paul Citron, uh, author of this lovely book, Isaac Unbound, A Life of Reconciliation. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here uh, in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Paul Citron, Congregational Rabbi uh, at Congregation Albert and elsewhere in New Mexico for over 25 years. And we've been discussing Rabbi Paul's book, Isaac Unbound, A Life of Reconciliation, and particularly exploring this notion of Midrash. And you said before the break that we create Midrash in our own right. I think for me, one of the joys of Judaism is the power of Midrash. And I personally believe that Midrash has helped keep our people going. Because for me, um, instead of just reading a text and asking a rabbi and saying, what is the meaning of this text? How, what does this text mean exactly? We can fill in the gaps and 
try to explore God and find God in another way. So I guess the question for you, since this is a Midrashic work without question, um, is who are you to write Midrash? Who are any of us to write Midrash? If Torah, <laughs> if, if the Bible, if, if the Bible is received wisdom, who are we to say, well, maybe it means this or maybe it means this? What's, what's happening here when you're writing Midrash? Who, who are we to do this? Well, that's such a, an excellent question, because um, let me answer you first with the Midrash, and then I will elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, according to the Torah, when the Israelites were to receive the Ten Commandments, uh, after uh, a little bit of uh, smoke, thunder, and lightning, the Israelites say to Moses, listen, God's voice is too powerful. You go up and get the word and bring it back to us. And the Midrash says, every Israelite at Sinai heard the first syllable of the first word of the Ten Commandments, which is the simple sound, ah. And that each Israelite understood that sound according to his or her own intellectual and spiritual abilities. I think that lays the groundwork for the idea that every Jew has the right, perhaps even the duty, uh, not only to study Scripture, but to respond to it out of his own life experience. So we not only read out of Scripture, we read elements of our life experience into it as well. It flows uh, both ways. So it's not just uh, Rabbi Paul or Rabbi Neil who, with a little study, have the right to do that, but uh, any Jew. And I would say uh, that, you know, even among Jews that we call today Orthodox, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this tradition exists with them as well. They are not fundamentalists uh, when it comes to, uh, to the text. They, too, interpret it. Um, we could ask the question, I guess, what is it that keeps the Bible um, fresh, alive, and continuing to be a bestseller? Uh, if it were just a closed book and you didn't interpret it, it would have been a dead letter a long time ago. Mm. But the fact that we can uh, uh, open it, read it, discuss it uh, in community is uh, what keeps it moist and vigorous and alive. And I, I love that midrash that you share. I thought you were going to go with a different midrash of the angel coming to each individual Israelite at Sinai and kissing them on the mouth and essentially passing on the tradition to them individually. And what's wonderful is we both have a very similar outcome from two different midrashim, uh, which, which I, I enjoy that very much. <laughs> I love that. Um, I, I love that. I'm so, so glad you said it. I, I think... When you say we have a duty to respond out of out of our own life experience, the right and the duty to respond, I guess the question that some people who may be new to the concept of Midrash might think, but if you have received authority that is telling you here is what the text means, then you can be certain that the community is unified in understanding. If you have Midrash, how do you avoid Midrash becoming a free for all? Um, how do we, is there an issue with 20,000 different versions of Isaac Unbound? Not that I think such a thing is necessary because I really enjoyed this book, but, but do you risk watering down religion with a book like this or watering down Torah? I could see, I don't think so, but I could see people who aren't used to this kind of interpretation thinking that. So how might you respond to that? 
Um, yeah, it's it's really a good question. I know I've been in study groups uh, where there seems to be uh, uh, some folks who say, you know, it's written this way and, and that's what it means. But uh, as I said, first of all, a minute ago, I think the ability of people to uh, interpret is what keeps the text um, fresh. And uh, even though it's a closed book in terms of not adding books to the Bible, uh, it's not a closed process. Um, it's a process of ongoing uh, study and searching. And really, the fact is that uh, the Bible is a 3,000-year-old book. We've had a lot of different experiences in three millennia mm, that mm. Uh, may make us react differently to uh, to what we're reading. So um, I hope that answers it does. Uh, your question. It does. And it makes me think of the idea that there are 70 faces to Torah, as we say in our tradition, that there aren't, seven, there aren't 700 faces or 7,000 or, or millions, but there's 70 faces that gives us that permission, doesn't it, to interpret but within certain boundaries which we normally know when they go beyond the boundaries when we normally well, know that's a, that's an interesting point rabbi neil because uh one thing that i try to convey to people is that um, when it comes to uh, jewish belief and that includes interpretation of scriptures judaism is non-dogmatic mm. and by that mm. i mean uh, there aren't things that you absolutely uh, must affirm to be a member of the Jewish people or to be uh, one who affirms Jewish values. Uh, there's room for debate and discussion, except for the idea that, uh, you know, God is the uh, sole source of uh of creation and maintenance of the universe, mm -hmm. and that God is never physical, never becomes physical. And uh, that if you affirm this God, you have to uh, affirm the duty to act ethically. Once I've said those things, there's a lot of room for discussion and debate. Right. So you mentioned before that we're all victims in some measure, and Isaac clearly is victim in the, uh, of the situation of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac um, on Mount Moriah. What, what can we learn from Isaac's personal path to fix what is broken what kind of message is it that you're hoping readers get from this book by seeing his journey well there are a number of things first of all um, that reconciliation with others is nothing less than participating in gathering what i call the shards if there's one uh, repetitive metaphor that runs through this short novel it's the idea of shards and the brokenness of people's lives and the experiences that cause that. So one is the affirmation that it's uh, possible to make whole what is broken in our lives and our relationships. And uh, also I want people to take away that with reconciliation, we not only repair relationships, but we repair our own spirits the uh, basis of reconciliation is, I guess, an honest self-evaluation and sensitive, uh, empathetic listening, and um, that, uh, and the willingness to sh to shape and reshape our lives. And I would also say that this effort of reconciliation is, of course, a lifelong pursuit. Mm. I think the um, the question about making whole. 
um, you, as you know, it's rabbi teaching rabbi. Um, the, the, <laughs> the idea of teshuva, the idea of atonement is really an idea of return, returning to right relationship. Can we, when we have such profound fractures and there are, there are fractures in relationships with family, with friends, with individuals in our lives that can be so profound and damaging, sometimes reconciliation seems impossible. Um, and I'm, I'm certain you're not saying that we must all try to reconcile all relationships because there may be a relationship of harm, in which case it's actually important for a person to, to create some distance. I mean, you, you mentioned in, in that um, uh, Mount Moriah passage, um, I seem to remember if I can find it, I could have, where, where is it? It's, it's with his father, he says, I couldn't meet father and accompany him home. I did not think I could ever look at him or speak to him again. My life had mm -hmm. been spared, but my love and trust were shattered on the sacrificial altar. My spirit was wounded. It was beyond healing, I thought. What do we do? What do we say to those who, we've got about three minutes left. What do we say to those for whom there isn't reconciliation with other people? How can, is there a reconciliation of self instead? What do we do with, with relationships like that? This is very important, and I think many of us experience, Rabbi Neil, what you've described. And um, first of all, in terms of uh, the word reconciliation, that has an implication to me of, of two-way street. Mm. And even if uh, you have to start the effort, and even if you have to go the extra mile to make the effort successful, as uh, Isaac does with Ishmael in that part of the book, um, I don't think Jewish tradition binds us in any way uh, to go beyond a certain point. By that I mean, if I've wronged you, um, I am supposed to uh, try to uh, endeavor to have a dialogue and make things right and uh, have a reconciliation only up to three efforts. Right. And if I'm not met after three sincere efforts, then I've discharged my, my duty as far as that goes. But you're quite right. There are times where uh, we are uh, hurt or in uh, disconnect from a family member, from a good friend, and sometimes it's necessary to uh, maintain that break uh, for reasons of our own uh, mental and emotional and spiritual health, our own uh, character. So in the last part of the book, as far as uh, Isaac dealing with the question of giving the blessing and the right. birthright to Jacob rather than uh, Esau, uh, he knows what the values are for the person who's the bearer of the covenant. And uh, he knows what he must do. And I would submit that Isaac uh, tried to make up for what we're told is his lack of mother love from Rebecca right. by favoring Esau. But in the end, Isaac, as the covenant bearer, bearer knew that um, the reconciliation would have to be by giving Jacob the, the blessing. So uh, it's there are times when... Uh, perhaps uh, we have to reconcile with ourselves because we can't reconcile with another. Thank you. Very quickly, where is this book available? Uh, well, it's available on Amazon or Ingram, or if you ask uh, those nice people at that fabulous bookstore in Santa Fe, uh, what I've forgotten the name of it, 
Um, there's there's or, quite a number of or, them. There's, but okay, so local bookstores and online as well is, is what we're saying. Right. Yes, wonderful. Correct. This has been really powerful. I really, really appreciate you coming and sharing your perspective on midrash, on reconciliation. Um, I really do recommend this book. I think it's a lovely book. Um, so thank you to Rabbi Paul Citron, author of Isaac Unbound: A Life of Reconciliation. Thank you for being on our show this evening. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. I appreciate it. Bye. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return in two weeks' time, keep searching.